Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you this week from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. We'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. And our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, Australian police want Hillsong founder Brian Houston to appear in court to answer charges that he covered up child sexual abuse. Also, more leaders have departed Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and a beloved Baptist youth speaker has unexpectedly died. We begin today with charges of plagiarism against popular speaker and New York Times best-selling author, Vodi Bauckham. The publisher of a best-selling Christian critique of critical race theory, Salem Books, denies claims that the book's author misquoted or fabricated those quotes. Uh, Salem Books publisher Tim Peterson called the claims completely unfounded. This book is called Fault Lines by Vodi Bauckham. Yeah, and it was a top 10 bestseller among religion books throughout April, May, and even in July, selling tens of thousands of copies and prompting praise and criticism in evangelical circles. The book warns of what it calls a looming catastrophe in evangelical circles in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd. In his book, Bauckham points to the work of law professor Richard Delgado, one of the founders of critical race theory, an academic field that studies how systematic racism affects society to bolster his argument. But a number of commentators, including conservative commentators like Anthony Bradley of the King's College and uh, Joel McDermott, claim that Balcom has misrepresented Delgado's arguments to stir up book sales. And McDermott says that Balcom plagiarized the work of atheist author and anti-critical race theory activist James Lindsay. So is there any truth to these accusations? Well, you know, I've looked at them a bit, Natasha, and it seems to me that the plagiarism claims are uh, unproven at best. Um, They appear to be sort of an intramural fight over the best way to attribute uh, sources in a popular book as compared to an academic book, which has a more rigorous standard of attribution. But it does appear that Bodie Bauckham has misquoted Delgado in a few places, or at least taken some of his quotes out of context. But again, Vodi Bauckham's publisher is standing behind him. Yeah, that's right. His publisher, uh, Tim Peterson, who, by the way, I should admit in a spirit of full disclosure, I know Tim Peterson, I know Vody Bauckham, and I know Anthony Bradley, one of uh, Vody Bauckham's critics. Um, now, the publisher, uh, again, that's Tim Peterson with Salem Books, uh, says that McDermott's accusations are more about style differences than true plagiarism. In fact, here's a, a quote from Tim Peterson. The blogger's claim, that's McDermott's claim, of poor documentation and plagiarism is just not well-founded. McDermott's weak argument is based on his preference for quoting in an academic style of documentation and formatting rather than the Chicago Manual of Style, which is the standard for popular level books. And it was he says it's used not only by Salem, but also all of his peer publishers at the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association. 
But Peterson left the door open for a future correction or clarification in fault lines. Yeah, he did. He said that if we determine that there is, in fact, a genuine need for correction or clarification, we will do so in the next printing and issue an errata document accordingly. Our next story is an update on the Ravi Zacharias situation. Yeah, the leaders of the Zacharias Institute, uh, Vince and Joe Vitale, said that they plan to resign. That's a decision that they reached after a season of what they called lamenting, listening, and learning after sexual misconduct accusations uh, came to light against uh, the late evangelist and Zacharias Institute founder, uh, Ravi Zacharias. Uh, Vince and Joe Vitale said in a Facebook post that they would step down next week and that they needed to step into a substantial season of reordering to embrace the time and space needed to allow themselves to be deeply formed by all that we have been humbled by and wrecked over in the last year. Again, that's a direct quote from their Facebook post. Uh, The Vitalis did not indicate whether they would continue in ministry, but they did thank former and present colleagues, saying that we hope to be able to serve with many of you again at some point in the future. The Vitalis had previously issued an apology for their role in the abuse scandal. Yeah, they did. It was in December of 2020, Vince and Joe uh, Vitali said in an apology video posted to YouTube uh, a couple of months later in February that their confidence in Ravi Zacharias had been severely misplaced and that by ignoring the sexual misconduct accusations put forward by victims, they had failed in the precise areas that God had asked them to prioritize. The Vitali said in that video that Zacharias had lied to our faces, but that they had made it too easy for him to live those lies. The video specifically mentioned Lorianne Thompson, who alleged in 2017 that Zacharias harassed her and drew her into a sexual relationship. That is, in fact, a story that we reported in Ministry Watch way back then, four years ago. Uh, They went on to say that we deeply hurt people, the people most in need of our care. That was Vince Vitale again speaking on that video. He said, we're very, very sorry. Now, Lorianne Thompson replied on Twitter when that original video was posted that the apology was accepted. Other Ravi Zacharias International Ministries officials who have apologized include CEO Sarah Davis, who is Zacharias's daughter, and RZIM Senior Vice President Abdu Murray. The organization's board also has apologized. Yeah, they have, but um, there have been very few resignations, which is uh, one of the things that makes this resignation by Joe and Vince Vitale so significant. It's Ministry Watch's position that the entire board and leadership team of our RZIM should resign in an orderly manner. Uh, it, it is my opinion personally that their behavior has made them complicit in ways that make them unfit for continued leadership in ministry at this time, and they need to go through a period of restoration outside of some leadership role. And and by the way, Natasha, I should also add that that as you and I are recording this, there is late breaking news related to RZIM. A group of donors has filed a class action lawsuit against RZIM. Essentially, they're suing to get money back that they donated to the ministry. I should also add that such lawsuits have had uh, trouble getting traction in the past. They've almost always been unsuccessful, but we'll keep a close eye on this one, and you can read updates on the Ministry Watch website. Warren, let's look at one more story before 
the break, and that's a surprising new development in the Hillsong saga. Yeah, we've been covering troubles at Hillsong for more than a year, but in fact, it now appears that the trouble goes back maybe decades. Uh, The founder of the Sydney, Australia-based Global Hillsong Church is a man named Brian Houston, known to many of our listeners. He has now been charged with concealing child sex offenses, uh, police in Australia said on Thursday. Detectives served Houston's lawyers on Thursday with a notice for him to appear in a Sydney courtroom on October the 5th for allegedly concealing a serious indictable offense, according to police. Police allege that Houston knew information relating to the sexual abuse of a young male in the 1970s and failed to bring that information to the attention of the police. Yeah, that's right. What makes this story even more strange is that those charges of sexual abuse back in the 70s relate to Brian Houston's own father, Frank Houston, who admitted to abusing a boy over the course of several years in the 1970s. A government inquiry into the institutional response to allegations of child sex abuse found in in 2015, rather, that Houston did not tell police that his father was a child sex abuser. Instead, uh, Brian Houston quietly allowed his father to retire rather than report him to the police. His father later confessed to the abuse. He died in 2004 at age 82. Warren, we need to take a break, but when we return, the Presbyterian Church in America is under fire for how it is handling abuse allegations against a Korean-American pastor. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Let's continue with the story we promised before the break. And that's a Presbyterian oversight group has determined that the former head pastor of a Korean church near the Champaign-Urbana campus of the University of Illinois can remain an ordained minister despite allegations of sexual misconduct against him and his church. Yeah, according to a lengthy investigation by National Public Radio Station WBEZ in Chicago, Covenant Fellowship Church and its former head pastor, Min Joshua Chung, for years fostered in a misogynistic environment that included sexual mistreatment and oppression of women. Chung founded the church in 1990 on the University of Illinois' Champaign-Urbana campus and welcomed students to join. 
Yeah, but lay leaders and congregants uh, have in recent years been leaving the church, uh, which also was a registered student organization at the university. Uh, They were leaving amid rumors of this sexual misconduct. Um, Chung also announced in the midst of all of this in the summer of 2019 that he would transition out of the head pastor role and that a team of associate pastors would take over. Uh, In September of 2019, a member of the new leadership team, Pastor K.J. Kim said that Chung had admitted to touching a female inappropriately about 20 years earlier, but had immediately stopped when she asked him to. That, again, according to a recording obtained by the NPR station WBEZ. However, a document submitted by a group of former church members calling themselves the Allegation Group asked the Korean Central Presbytery, a denominational oversight group, to investigate the incident. Yeah, Chung also was accused of covering up sexual abuse committed by a fellow local pastor. The church's website says that as of July 2021, CSC is under the leadership of this new pastor, KJ Kim, and a lay oversight board, and it is in the process of particularizing, which means becoming a fully organized church in the Presbyterian Church in America. And I should add, uh, Natasha, that that's really kind of why this story is of interest to, to me and to ministry watches because, you know, even though some of these allegation abuses went back a long time ago, uh, the the um, group that is uh, calling themselves the allegation group doesn't believe that the, all of the misdeeds have been fully investigated, and they're concerned that the PCA, which is a conservative, um, you know, a theologically conservative denomination, is about to accept this church uh, into the denomination. So we're going to keep following this story and see if there's going to be any more fallout from this allegation group's accusations. Our next story concerns what some are calling digital evangelism. First of all, what is that? Yeah, it's the use of the internet to do evangelism. And of course, on its face, it sounds like a pretty good idea. Uh, Consider, for example, that evangelist Billy Graham, probably the best known evangelist of the 20th century, preached to about 215 million people at live events during his lifetime. He reached about 2.2 billion people via TV and other media. And according to the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, about 2.2 million people made decisions for Christ over his half-century career. That's pretty good. Now compare that to the global media outreach. Yeah, global media outreach, which is one of the leading proponents of digital evangelism, it kind of puts all those numbers that I just mentioned in the shade. Uh, They say that they have generated 10 times as many decisions for Christ in 2019 alone as Billy Graham did in his entire career. Uh, Global um, media outreach is based in Plano, Texas. It says that it has made two billion gospel presentations and recorded 250 million decisions for Christ since its founding in 2004. That's about 100 times more than Billy Graham had during his entire lifetime. All of this is accomplished with a budget of about $8 million, a staff of only 25 people, and what they say are 3,500 online missionary volunteers who speak about 50 languages. Those numbers are pretty spectacular. 
Well, they are. I just wonder if they're maybe too spectacular. Uh, while some in the missionary community, you know, see the savings and other benefits that digital methods offer, others question whether the large number of instantaneous digital converts actually constitute a spiritually regenerated believer who will remain faithful over time. In fact, Christianity Today uh, did an analysis back in 2019 of GMO and of the 22 million converts that the organization claimed, um, Christianity Today could identify only about 5,000 of those 22 million people that were actually involved in a local church. Still, 5,000 isn't too bad. I mean, after all, how many people were you able to get to church last year? Well, that's a great point, a fair point, and I'm not saying that digital evangelism is bad or that these organizations are not doing good work. But what I am saying is that especially when evangelicalism's credibility is so much in the balance right now, uh, everything we say is scrutinized. And by the way, I believe everything we say should be scrutinized. We should be very, very careful about numbers that we throw around. Full transparency and accountability should be the order of the day. Um, That's especially important since others are getting into the act. Crew, which is formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ, now has a digital evangelism arm. Southern Baptist to start experimenting with this model. Seventh-day Adventist uh, denomination has recently invested in digital evangelism and operates the Center for Online Evangelism. It's just important that we know what we're doing before we pour millions and millions onto a project without knowing if it's really going to produce the results that we want it to. Warren, we're going to take another quick break here, but when we return our weekly lightning round of ministry news, I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Now, Warren, we like to use this last little segment as a lightning round of shorter news briefs. What is up first? Well, first up is that the fact that thousands are expected to attend the U.S. Assemblies of God's General Council, which is convening in Orlando, Florida this week. Uh, Don't expect the same drama that we saw at recent meetings of the Southern Baptist Convention, but it's important to remember that the Assemblies of God is the largest Pentecostal denomination in the world. It has more than 69 million members, more than 3 million of them right here in the United States. They'll be electing new executive leadership and discussing a range of issues, including digital ministries, which is the topic, of course, we mentioned right before the break. And do you have news of the death of a popular speaker? 
Yeah, his name uh, is Wade Morris. He was a popular Southern Baptist youth speaker who uh, was hospitalized with COVID-19, and he has since died. He was only 51 years old. We don't yet know if he died of COVID, uh, though it certainly appears that that is a possible cause. Uh, We'll update our website as we get more information on his cause of death. Until then, though, tributes have been pouring in regarding Wade Morris's impact. Yeah, that's right. The Oklahoma Baptist Convention said that his speaking ministry in Oklahoma and across the country has forever impacted countless young people. Wade's a faithful minister of the gospel and a great friend to Oklahoma Baptist. We are praying for his family. A native of Birmingham, Alabama, Morris was a graduate of Samford University and Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. After serving at several churches, he became a full-time itinerant speaker, spending about 200 days a year on the road, according to his ministry's website. He was known for the Journey Bible Study Series and for speaking at youth camps and conferences. Yeah, and among the tributes uh, have been people posting on Twitter their stories of coming to know Jesus at an event where uh, Morris was preaching or maybe making a decision to follow a call to full-time Christian ministry. Uh, His death is certainly tragic, but it is also obvious uh, that his life had an eternal impact. And finally, Warren, who's in the ministry spotlight this week? Well, this week, it's Prison Fellowship Ministries, founded by my mentor, Chuck Colson, in 1976. Uh, the ministry took in about $44 million last year and did prison ministry, not just all over the United States, but around the world. You can see our profile of Prison Fellowship Ministries, including a breakdown of their financial information on the front page of our website. Any housekeeping items before we go? Yeah, a couple of items. Uh, First, a reminder that faith-based fraud is now available in both uh, paperback, ebook, and audio versions. You can get the audio version at audible.com or at amazon.com. And secondly, just our normal weekly reminder to support your local church, then your favorite and carefully researched ministries, uh, hopefully using the research tools that we've got here at Ministry Watch. And only then, if you've got a little bit extra left over, uh, should you give to Ministry Watch to help you and others be more effective and informed stewards. Uh, Now, if you make a gift to Ministry Watch during the month of August, August, you'll receive as our thank you gift a one-year subscription to World Magazine. That's both the print and the digital versions of World Magazine. So it's a kind of a great deal. You can give as much or as little as you want and get a year subscription to the magazine. Uh, To make a gift, just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate tab at the top of the page. The producers for today's program are Rich Roslin and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Steve Raby, Ann Stike, Emily Miller, Alejandro Molina, and Adele Banks. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.